Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Jeff. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Um, I can't believe I haven't had anybody from EAB on here in 250-plus episodes. I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that. Uh, I've been a big fan of the Curious Chameleon study, used it in my first book, and I think I uh, now that you've given me some additional research on that particular study, I think I'm going to incorporate some of it in my next one. Um, but, uh, Jeff, I am delighted to have you here. How about we just uh, first and foremost let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure thing, Jason, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Jeff Martin. I'm Senior Director with EAB's Advancement Forum. I oversee a membership of over 300 advancement leaders from across North America and the UK. I do a lot of work with my team to uncover the pain points that are preventing advancement teams from reaching their peak potential and then finding those case profiles of strategies and tactics the most effective institutions are using 
to move the needle. I also oversee our ROI benchmarking work where we collect staffing, investment, fundraising, production data, as well as fundraiser productivity data to help advancement leaders figure out how to get from where they are to where they need in terms of performance. Uh, So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, yeah. So Jeff, uh, how do you end up on a team like this? Because you know, research and fundraising, they don't, uh, research is, we've, we've been researching things for a long time on this planet. Fundraising, I'd say we've probably been doing for about maybe half a century or so, but how does a guy like you end up in a shop and in a spot where you're at like this? You know, it's, it's funny. I actually had my 10 year anniversary at EAB this past Sunday. Okay. I you know, was hoping to, uh, you know, rent out a big event space, invite friends and family. Of and course. Basically anyone yeah. I've ever had contact with and instead opted for, <laughs> uh, my wife made a nice meal and we watched a movie. Um, <laughs> about 10 years ago, I had been uh, initially intending to be an academic. I thought I was going to be a, a history professor. Uh, when I graduated yeah. from college, spent a little bit of time in the private sector, working in publishing. And at that point was kind of, you know, kicking the tires. Do I go back to grad school and pursue a PhD or do I choose an alternative path? And, and started leaning towards the latter. I went to a, uh, back, back uh, then in my early career, went to a, a job search engine, typed in education because I knew I liked it and research because I knew how to do it. And I found an education research company, EAB, uh, formerly stood for Education Advisory Board. We've since transitioned to a more CVS type model. It stands for itself, EAB. Uh, I started out working across essentially the president's cabinet, doing work on every major jet stream issue in higher education. And then in 2012, we launched the Advancement Forum and I was on the team that stood that up. So as of nine years ago, I had very little experience in fundraising, but most of this past decade, I've spent doing uh, major in-depth research into development, engagement, advancement communications, talent management, so on and so forth. And it's through the wisdom of those 300 plus advancement leaders that I've gotten where I am today in a position to advise chief advancement officers and presidents of universities, honestly, on their fundraising and engagement strategy. So, Jeff, um, I'm sure with with your posture and your sort of place in the world, you all have got to have some opinions about things. So we always ask our guests to come with a big idea or bold opinion. What you got for us today? Well, the past year has been, of course, incredibly disruptive to advancement. We've seen fairly widespread declines so? in fundraising production. Yeah, you think so? You I think know, it's been a little bit of an understatement. I don't know if we're going to give you. I don't know if we're going to give you a, a, a royal royal ten year party for that. <laughs> <laughs> what What I've been intrigued by is the ways in which advancement has had to throw out the playbook and start from scratch. And what I've been digging into across the past few months is which of those things that we've had to do across the past year because of COVID, are we going to discard once we are post-vaccine and people are traveling and doing big events again? But more intriguingly, what are we going to keep? In what ways is this profession going to look different Um, not just at the margins, but at its core across the next year, across the next three years, across the next 10 years, 
Uh, and critically, in what ways will that new normal be a better normal than what we had before? How will it attend to some of the biggest challenges that advancement leaders have faced in the nine years since uh, we launched the advancement for our mini AB? So a great example, uh, we did a study back in 2018 called Preparing for Advancement's Digital Future. And the whole thing opened with a look at how advancement leaders and engagement professionals are having a harder and harder time getting their constituents, their alumni to show up for things. We've built an entire engagement model around the idea of in-person attendance, in-person showing participation, up. showing yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. And up. for so many advancement leaders, they were looking at their engagement uh, rosters, their registration lists, and seeing fewer names every year than the year before. This is something that has impacted just about every single industry that is predicated on the notion of showing up. Uh, arts events see fewer people. The Olympics saw fewer people. Movie theaters have been on a decline for many years now. With the proliferation of easy, accessible, at-home digital options, people just have changed their behaviors. The way they think about the world around them and engaging with organizations has shifted. But for advancement, they've really struggled to redefine engagement past in-person attendance, in-person events showing up. They were practically synonymous for most institutions. We did a study in 2018. We laid out how a lot of institutions were contending with this, starting to build out some digital programs. But again, that was largely at the margins. COVID has just changed that entirely. What three years ago was, you should probably think about this because soon your strategy will be unsustainable, became became basically overnight. You have to do this now because uh, what was on a path to unsustainability today is just impossible to do. You can't have in-person events. So something that advancement leaders had been kind of wringing their hands about for many years, oh, how do we pivot to a more digital first approach to engaging alumni that hopefully will bring in more people who weren't showing up for events, but would want to engage if we gave them the right option. Uh, what I'm interested in is, is how this new model can offer a solution to something that was just an evergreen challenge that no one could really figure out. Is it? <clears throat> so I've been working on my, um, New book comes out in September. Everybody who's been on the podcast and everybody who uh, listens has been hearing about this research I've been doing, Jeff. So bear with me here for a minute. But I've been looking at Edward Hall. Edward Hall was a sociologist in the 1950s and 60s that was looking at the context, sort of the layering that sort of exists in our relationships. And and just scratching the surface and listening, sort of reading between the lines of what you're talking about as I begin to sort of simmer on the notion of showing up. I, I I think one of my biggest reservations about the digital, this notion of sort of the, the, the digital space and how we're going to transition to the digital space is that I wonder if the reason that they were not showing up is because they just weren't impressed anymore because the context was getting lower. And as Hall would call it, it was becoming more and more low context there wasn't as much depth to the relationship. And by going digital, you're just going to perhaps double up, double down on that. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I I would probably 
argue that the lack the lack of depth in the relationships we have with many of our constituents is a byproduct of the strategy that we've pursued for the past decade. Namely, advancement has become a, a a very bifurcated operation where people with high net worth who have immediate major gift potential they have very personal relationships at the institution for people who do not have high net worth who are somewhere fingers crossed in the pipeline to one day giving a major gift or potentially being a planned giving donor or even just being a consistent annual fund donor across their lifetime those folks relationship is not with a person but rather with the institution We've adopted a sort of mass engagement and mass fundraising approach for the vast majority of everyone outside the top tier of our constituents and prospects. And it's really uh, hollowed out the relationships that they have with the institution. On top of that, compounding that is the fact that for many institutions, the value proposition of engagement has started to become a little bit murky. This was actually another thing we looked at in uh, the work we did on preparing for advancements digital and preparing for advancements digital future. Uh, There has been a crisis of faith in recent years among leaders of alumni associations and engagement operations uh, broadly that what they have to offer to their alumni is redundant with things that are delivered uh, in more accessible ways, in more user-friendly ways, in more personalized ways through other venues. Uh, An organization called Access Development did a study uh, of membership-based organizations, and they found that alumni organizations, uh, both separate alumni associations, dues-paying, non-dues as well, Uh, alumni associations were just really struggling to articulate what it was that they added to the lives of alumni. Why engage if you set aside loyalty and nostalgia? What remains? And the conclusion they came to was, uh, quote, the digital age has stripped many alumni organizations of their value proposition as they are no longer the exclusive providers, content communication and connectivity. Uh, And, on top of that, they say many institutions seem to have overlooked the fact that alumni expect more than a one-sided relationship, and essentially the institution isn't providing it. So there isn't the right. – for many institutions, there isn't the personal connection that would pull constituents and alumni among them closer to the institution. There also isn't the reason to engage absent that personal connection. What do I get from this? It's a bit of a question mark for many institutions. In my my research, talking to hundreds of alumni association leaders and AVPs of alumni relations and engagement, I often ask them, what can your alma mater, not your employer, but your alma mater do for you at this point in your life? What, What is the need you have that your alma mater and your alma mater alone can fill? Lots of them end up being stumped by that. Okay, so are we talking about, okay, so maybe I'm taking it in the wrong direction. Maybe my assumptions are moving in the wrong direction. Uh, You know, my assumption when I see some of these folks out on LinkedIn and other social media platforms talking about digital gift officers and so forth, I'm generally thinking, okay, these people want to take what has historically been a high context relationship where 
Jim or Sally are literally hopping on a, fl- a plane and flying to Boulder or wherever they're flying to and buying somebody lunch and asking for that $25,000 gift. But it sounds like what you might be describing is that it's actually that we might take, we might utilize the efficiency of a platform such as like we're sitting here on today and actually begin to apply that to what we've historically done, utilized direct mail and special events to do. So it's not the donor in Boulder that we're focusing on anymore. It's the $500 gift that we were securing from, from Ben in Kansas City or something. Am, am I following this correctly? Um, because I, I, I think the high-touch approach flying to Boulder is always going to work. And I think what is starting to what I'm what I think I I think we're all thinking is starting to wane and was probably past the point of diminishing returns even before COVID came along is the events is the is the the direct mail is the is that one sided mass communication type stuff. And if we could if we could totally unplug half of that and invest in 25 to 35 year old alums who will literally sit in front of platforms like this and have halfway decent conversations like you and I are having today, you might raise a hell of a lot of $500 gifts. Am I right? Yes. There's a huge opportunity for those. Uh, we, we haven't settled on a, a perfect term for them, rising capacity, emerging leader donors. We did an entire study called the pipeline, uh, uh, pipeline development in the donor investor era focused on those elder millennials, you could say, in the you know, 30 to 40 year old yeah. range who haven't yet had the wealth event, but are on track towards, uh, towards having one. For most institutions, yeah. those prospects are just completely overlooked. They're relegated <clears throat> to a one size fits all engagement strategy and direct mail appeals. Uh, we need to do more for those prospects and build a stronger relationship earlier, but do so at uh, relatively low cost and at high volume for the institution, uh, the reason that we haven't cultivated a very personal relationship with most of those constituents, most of those prospects as of yet, is that there just isn't the ROI on those relationships right now and advancements. They budgets, haven't been able to work out the economics. Yeah, exactly. And especially uh, nowadays for fiscal year 21, uh, just shy of half of institutions uh, cut their advancement budgets by double digits. So those economics are of paramount importance right now. But I would actually disagree a little bit with um, how you divide into the, the world into pipeline prospects for whom digital works and major gift prospects for whom you need to get on a plane. Because what I've heard from so many chief advancement officers and AVPs of development is that when, when we get back to this better normal, we certainly will be getting on a lot of planes. Uh, there's there's something lacking in digital-only major and principal gift uh, cultivation. It's worked for some institutions, but uh, across our membership of institutions, the number of $25,000 plus proposals that fundraisers have successfully closed in the past year that number fell by a median yeah. of 11%. Almost two-thirds of institutions saw declines, uh, despite the fact that gift officers actually held, at the median institution, held the number of proposals they submitted steady. So that we've we've been able to sustain the activity, but donors, there, there's just something lacking, it seems, for donors. So I think we will be getting on a lot of planes, but what we were never able to do in the pre-pandemic era 
was get in front of prospects frequently enough or reach those who are outside of you know a, a dense concentration of prospects. If we can't go to an area and see five people, if we can't go to an area and yeah. be nearly certain that we'll walk out with a signed gift agreement, if it's a single high net worth prospect, who at this point is just a suspect, we still need to qualify in the middle of North Dakota, I would bet a good chunk of change that that person's going to remain a suspect for decades to come until they move to Chicago or what have yeah. you. Uh, Brent Grinna from Evertrue and I have uh, on LinkedIn been going back and forth. We disagree on a, a couple points about what's happening and what's going to happen. But where we see to be seem to be in agreement is in the fact that post-vaccine, major gift cultivation will become much less of a black or white proposition. Uh, we've talked in the past about the visit or nothing mentality where gift officers would say, oh, I can't visit that prospect, so I will not cultivate that prospect. Rather, it'll be tiered. There will be very high ROI activities like, uh, say, putting a proposal in front of a prospect that will definitely merit getting on that plane. But there will be across the course of a cultivation cycle, a lot of intermediate uh, midpoint touches, moves that are necessary to earn the right to ask for a gift, to get the prospect to a point of proposal. And I think a lot of those will be able to happen digitally. Uh, so the the ultimate uh, endpoint of cultivation with you know a handshake and a, a face-to-face knee-to-knee meeting likely won't change. But I, I think that everything along the way from qualification to moves to how we build value and uh, show prospects the the merit of investing in the institution is going to shift. And with any luck, it's with any luck, it's going to have a big beneficial impact on fundraising at our institutions. The number of high net worth unassigned prospects at the average institution runs into the thousands. People who are capable of giving a hundred thousand dollars to a college or a university who we've never seen before and don't even have a gift officer working on because we, we just don't have the capacity to do so. Uh, the average amount of time from first qualification visit to first major gift uh, is about five years in the United States. These cultivation pursuits drag on for a half decade because the there's just so much space in between each move, because we just, again, don't have the capacity. It's not structurally possible if you're getting on planes to see someone enough times to build that value, to earn the right to ask for a gift in any sort of reasonable amount of time. So with any luck, we'll end up seeing many more prospects we couldn't see before and speed up our proposals uh, and end up closing a lot more major gifts at the end of it all. Okay, so, but is the problem... I think we've known for quite so uh, I'll I'll tell you a little bit. So so I was talking to a major gift officer, very talented young man um, who works at a nearby um, uh, very what we would consider an an, elite for for central Pennsylvania, an elite, you know, school of learning, you know, four year college university here in central Pennsylvania. Um, And um and his comment to me, Jeff, and this was probably about two years ago, so b- before the, the pandemic, he said, we can't make calls. We're not allowed to make calls with donors who 
do not have the capacity or do not, we cannot expect to ask for six figure gifts. He couldn't, he can't hop on a plane. He can't put them in his portfolio. Um, he was coached by an outside group. You know, th- th- there was, there was such this sort of this underlying assumption, this implicit, no, this, this implicit built in expectation that if you're not asking for six figure gifts, you're not, you're not allowed to talk to these people is basically what, what he was conveying to me. And there were, there were, there were outsiders who were coaching them along this line. Um, an outside group was coaching them along this same line of thinking. And I thought, but what I'm hearing from you, Jeff, and, and I've, and I've, I've been in some of the banter with, with Brent as well. And I think what might be emerging from these conversations, uh, so, so Jeff, I, uh, I'm going to pull up, pull back the curtain on my upbringing. So I was raised in the church and the first five years of my fundraising career, I spent largely being trained in the parachurch space. And what I'm, what I'm hearing and what I try to teach a lot of my clients, be they in the faith-based space or otherwise, is, is what we would know to be in the church is a discipleship sort of process. And it's basically recognizing that that $500 donor is eventually going to perhaps get, reach a time of life where they're going to be that $25,000 donor. And eventually that person is perhaps going to be that six-figure donor. And so maybe what you're describing is a more holistic, more long-term, is is more of a holistic, long-term sort of perspective on this. And maybe some of this is ultimately going to come back to the, to the argument that I was making in my first book, that what we're going to need to learn how to do is teach our 26-year-old development officers, which I think is what Brent is advocating for, um, rather than teaching them how to be you know, techno geniuses on Facebook, we need to teach them how to sit on platforms like this and have meaningful conversations with humans anywhere on the planet. I mean, we're basically talking about adding context to these relationships. You and I could probably do this conversation two or three times. And and when we finally cross paths, you know, in Northern Virginia, we could sit and have lunch and negotiate any, any sort of thing. Is that essentially what you're describing? Yes, largely. Uh, There is a big need for pipeline development outside of major gift officers' portfolios. I'm not just talking about pipeline development in in the sense of people who have capacity today, who we haven't seen before, need to start building a relationship with them. We need to think longer term. I will say most institutions have over-ascribed or set too wide a scope on their young alumni pipeline development activities, by which I mean there is... Uh, yeah, I know exactly where you're going, brother. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of investment in and a lot of uh, uh, nights of sleep lost over alumni participation rates. The idea that yes. Um, yes. we just, we have no idea who someday will be a major gift donor. So we need to engage everyone in our alumni base. We need to get as many people as possible to give to us. Setting aside the fact that that often leads to honestly very transactional strategies, what gets measured gets done. And if you're measuring, you know, number of gifts from your constituency, from young alumni, you're going to seek out things that maybe just kind of one and done aren't actually meaningful philanthropic investments, um, you know, kind of give to get fundraising campaigns and the like, who, who knows if those uh, sock 
donors, people who gave to get a pair of branded university socks will end up saying, oh, because I started giving through that campaign, I you know, was set on a path to someday <laughs> giving $100,000 in institution. Setting that aside, the strategy of trying to engage and fundraise from everyone and get as many people as possible to give to you ends up meaning that those young alumni, the 25 year old who uh, you know just got a job at a private equity firm, the 28 year old who's enrolled at I don't know Harvard or Stanford Business School, the 32 year old who exactly. uh, whose startup has doubled in size for the past, every year for the past three years, those individuals get the same exact treatment as anyone else, and it, it's kind of a lowest common denominator cultivation. It has to appeal to everyone, which means it doesn't appeal all that strongly to anyone in particular. So a lot of our work is focused on the need for much more intentional relationships uh, earlier in the pipeline, which honestly, Jason, means we have to decide what we are not going to do or what we are going to do less of. I honestly think from an institutional standpoint, there needs to be a lot more investment in relationship management earlier in the pipeline younger in donors' lives, and a little bit less in alumni participation, which for a lot of institutions, uh, one public university that we work with, the chief advancement officers, uh, I believe now former president, came in uh, pretty hot about alumni participation as a way of rising in the rankings, in U.S. News rankings. Of course, U.S. News takes alumni participation into account essentially as a measure of how satisfied alumni are with their uh, with their education. And the president wanted to maximize alumni participation to rise in the rankings. And the chief advancement officer thought to uh, thought to themselves, like, I, I, I feel like that's not quite right, that there may be less opportunity here uh, than the president is estimating. So uh, he actually had uh, one of his colleagues run some numbers. Uh, he found that they'd have to invest $1.5 million more every single year, just in alumni participation strategies to maintain their undergraduate alumni participation rate, not to grow, but to keep it from sliding, to move just one spot in the U.S. news rankings, they would have to increase their alumni participation rate from the high-ish single digits up to uh, just shy of 50% of alumni giving just to move one spot. So for a lot of institutions who look at alumni participation and say, oh, we need to get as many people as possible to give, uh, if it's for the sake of future major gifts, hey, look a little bit more closely at those high potential young alumni that you're just relegating to this one-size-fits-all strategy, maybe double down there instead. If it's because alum, uh, U.S. News and uh, the rankings chase is of uh, top importance to your leadership team, there actually may be no there there. It may be that uh, the best way to rise in the rankings is not through alumni participation. It has a, a fairly negligible impact on that. You know, Je Jeff, I can't help but remind myself of, and I've been incorporating his stuff into my research here as well. And I'm sure you're familiar, maybe you're familiar with John Hagel's stuff. John Hagel's in the Silicon Valley, and he's been talking about this transition. He calls it the big shift. And 
the big shift is this move that's happening in our global economy from what he calls scalable efficiency to scalable learning. And that's exactly what you just described. We have designed our advancement offices and quite frankly, all of our fundraising efforts on scalable efficiency. So how can we achieve the greatest level of efficiency at scale? And, and I got to I gotta be honest with you, I, I, I'm learning to despise the word scale because I don't think I, I know it. I'm a business major. I get it. I teach at the local college. I, I understand scale, but I don't think that all of our nonprofit friends understand that when a third party vendor is trying to sell you something at scale, they're generally trying to sell you something mass market. But but Jeff, what he talks about, what Hegel is talking about is, is the idea that we're going to move to a scalable learning sort of posture, which is exactly what you're talking about. And it really comes down to going back to my my involvement in the church and in the faith-based space is what you're describing as a development officer that can learn how to develop the discernment rather than assuming sort of this mass market posture they're learning how to discern very serendipitous sort of opportunities very quickly. Uh, Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, talks about the same thing, that we're going to move from this efficiency-driven culture to a culture and a workplace that you're going to have to do deep work, which means not shallow, cheap engagement with individuals, but, but, but very meaningful engagement with individuals. And you're going to have to sort of intuit that there's somewhere this is going to go. Um, and, and, and then your employers, this is what I say to young fundraisers when I get asked the question, um, you know, what is the skill I most need to have? You need to know how to be in front of the donor and discern if the relationship's going to go somewhere. Um, because again, going back to this platform you and I are sitting on, I think we can teach 25 and 30 year olds instead of teaching them how to be fascinated with, with, you know, tinkering around under the hood of a, a Facebook platform or HubSpot or something, we can teach them how to discern how to have a conversation with Jeff and know whether this is actually going to go somewhere or not. Am I right? Yeah, I, I think so. What what intrigues me most about Hegel's philosophy, Hegel's theory is the idea that the organization of the future, the one that's Going to be most successful is one in which everyone in the organization uh, takes ownership for innovation, takes ownership for figuring out how do we overcome our primary organizational or, uh, uh, may I say it, business challenges, that it isn't just yes, a top yes, totally. down, how, how do we engineer all the widgets to operate in the most efficient way possible, but rather everyone is a stakeholder. And thinking differently about how they approach their work and the work of the chief advancement officer in this uh, framework would be in engineering the structures and incentives to encourage that work. Um, and I, I think for a lot of uh, frontline teams, they're looking for that sort of support. I've been impressed. So EAB works with basically every constituent, every every person that sits on the president's cabinet. We work with provosts, chief business officers, and vice presidents of IT, vice presidents of student affairs, so on and so forth. It's in the advancement forum where we work with chief advancement officers that I've seen membership be used uh, more so than in any other area EAB does work to engage, empower, and franchise the frontline teams on our chief advancement officers' yeah. uh, 
yeah. within their divisions. And it's because for advancement, the difference between, you know, securing a hundred thousand or million or $10 million gift and not doing so it's decisions that are made by individual fundraisers. It's someone looking at a prospect who they haven't been able to get in with. And rather than just relegating them to the, you know, uh, oh, you know, just overlooked and unresponsive and not a prospect now pile thinking, how do I approach this differently? What could work for them? We've seen fantastic innovation across the past few years, especially in the past year. Uh, one institution started uh, empowering their frontline fundraisers to request the president's presence on Zoom cultivation visits for just five or 10 minutes, so kind of presidential drop-ins or drive-bys with donors, a way of extending what previously was, uh, you know, incredibly exclusive that not many donors could uh, uh, could access, could experience, you know, the president one-on-one conversation and doing so in a, a very efficient manner. Another institution built a toolkit for gift officers to put together their own salons, inviting oftentimes a faculty expert or some unit lead on campus that donors would respond very strongly to. And then uh, asking not one, but typically like five or 10 prospects whose interests overlap or industries overlap with one another to come and participate in a conversation. So kind of a you know group chat among uh like-minded people that right. doubles as a networking opportunity. Right. I touched earlier for alumni engagement on, you know, what's our value? Same question goes for major gift cultivation. Why would someone say yes to that visit? Why would someone say yes to yeah. taking 30 or 45 or 60 minutes out of a probably a very busy evening to sit down with you if it's just, oh, so I can share updates from the college, from the university, it's probably not going to land with a lot of people unless that's just ingrained. Oh, I need to be involved. I need to be in the know. But that salon strategy, for example, that adds value. I, If I were invited to that, I'm probably going to learn something from that professor. I'm probably going to meet someone in my industry who might be beneficial to me in the future. And at the same time, for the gift officer, that tees up uh, cultivation. Uh, that tees up a gift pursuit that may end up in me investing philanthropically in the institution. Uh or another kind of a, a seated innovation. Uh, one gift officer at a private research university a few years ago was finding a lot of prospects just weren't responding to uh, to people's emails. So he took a few of them, just started reaching out to them on LinkedIn. He ended up booking a number of visits in a short period of time with people who had never before responded because the email was just, they looked at it as spam. They looked at it as junk. The LinkedIn message, though, stood out from the pile. And what I've always underscored with our partners is that when we're talking about uh, really any topic, but especially things that touch on innovation and technology uh, a little bit more fully, there isn't a right answer. Or if there is a right answer today, tomorrow it's not going to be. The key is not the strategy, but rather the system that empowers and, and enfranchises the people on your team to continue learning, continue discovering, continue innovating. Uh, and I'm in the very fortunate, very privileged position where my job is just to go around talking to people and asking them, what are you trying? What's working? And then getting that information to the folks that we work with. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Jeff, sort of the direction you're going there, I think is is 
where that's most problematic for guys like me and perhaps like our friend Brent um, is it's really the third party solution providers, I guess you could say, and the consultants and the experts in the space, whereas you 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 get the benefit at EAB is sort of being the you're sort of looking at things and studying them and putting them on paper and and, and letting us know what we're all doing in, in relationship to the rest of the world. But but yes, when there are any number of ways to sort of achieve a goal, we're no longer relying on you know, Frederick Taylor's one best way anymore. And I think that's what we've all become very, uh, that's some of the bantering I have done specifically with Brent is that I think we, I think some of us service providers have developed solutions, technology solutions, and sold them to our clients as if they were this one best way to achieve this. And when when a when a young you know twenty eight year old gift officer discovers that he or she can schedule meetings via LinkedIn to to achieve that institutional uh, innovation that Hegel talks about, you're just going to have to let that person experiment, and that's a different type of solution provider. In my case, it's just simply teaching. I mean, we coach development officers. So in my case, it's just it's just helping that development officer, con- uh, you know, translate skills that they would do at the lunch table in Boulder to the LinkedIn platform, you know, on social media. But some of these technology platforms, quite frankly, are designed to have a very linear process and linear processes don't really work in this very you know, big shift sort of Hegel world. Uh, but but I, the, the other thing I, I, I've got about five minutes, five more minutes with you, I know. Uh, so I've, I've got to wrap this up, um, land this plane. But some of what I'm hearing too, Jeff, and I don't know if you're a baseball guy, but I'm a big baseball guy, raised in the church and, and, and watch a lot of baseball. So that's sort of my two, if you want to know me, that's, that's me. Um, but some of what I'm hearing too in between the lines of what you've been saying, sharing with us this morning, is sort of the Billy Bean Moneyball sort of story. That if some of these smaller institutions really get their heads wrapped around how this works, you know, Michael Lewis in his book Moneyball tells the story about how much the Oakland A's were paying for a win when Billy Bean was able to do what he did with the Oakland Athletics, and he was, you know, he, for those wins that he won there that particular season, he was paying, you know fractions of what the big teams were paying for. And it occurs to me that if some of these smaller institutions and not necessarily even institutions, but perhaps your local humane society or your local rescue mission, if we get smart about this, you might see the really big Ivy League advancement offices competing with the local rescue mission just because the rescue mission knows how to utilize platforms like this, but doesn't confuse it with direct mail and special events. Am I, am I, are you following my thinking here? Yeah. One of the most eye-opening things that uh, a person I was interviewing, an AVP, actually one of those elite private institutions, uh, right, he said right. to me, the, I, I've been chewing on this since I first heard it. He said that the pandemic has democratized fundraising uh, because... For the the big players of the world, the elite institutions, they used to have two advantages. One was geographic reach. They had a budget to get on planes and reach prospects far outside of their 
metropolitan area or, yeah. or local region. Yeah. They could go wherever their prospects were to the other side of the world. Many of them have international fundraising operations and the local humane society just couldn't do that. Now, uh, Zoom has meant that everyone has a global reach. And right. the second way of democratized fundraising yes. is those big players have a lot of structural advantages for cultivation. So if they wanted to uh, really wow a high net worth prospect, invite them to campus, put them up in the president's box for a football game, right. have them exactly. toward yeah. the yeah. cutting edge brain science research institute and talk to the faculty members who are running it, have dinner with the dean. There are a lot of experiences that can only occur at a college or yeah. university and the local humane society, again, just doesn't have that sort of uh, cultivation toolbox. Uh, whereas the pandemic, to my previous point, extended nonprofits reach globally, it at the same time constrained the options for cultivation that the bigger players had and it put everyone on the same footing, yeah. Zoom visits, Zoom visits, Zoom visits. Uh, you bring the president yeah, or the dean involved, right. you know, that's a different proposition, but not chemically so. It's more, you know, the the extent, the the volume of it, the the depth of it, and not the substance of it. Coming out of the pandemic, of course, a lot of those advantages that uh, smaller nonprofits gained during the pandemic are going to disappear because, um uh, larger institutions are going to be able to get back on the road and avail themselves of those experiences that they were deprived of during the pandemic. But at the same time, I think it's teaching a lot of the smaller players lessons that they will bring to the post-pandemic world. And what, what we've seen across the past 10 years is heightening competition for donors' attention uh, across the past three decades, the number of nonprofits has tripled. Yeah. The percentage of nonprofits who say they are actively cultivating major gifts increased by it's something like 20 percentage points. Today, yeah. basically yeah. every nonprofit is eyeing major gift donors. It's not, you know, they're not just direct mail operations anymore. And they're launching campaigns too. I don't think that, you know, the Harvards and Yales and Stanfords of the world are going to be all that affected. I worry a little bit more about everyone outside of the top 50. Uh, higher ed fundraising is incredibly skewed. Most dollars going to a few institutions uh, for the you know next 50, the next 100, the next 200 institutions who are honestly fighting for tuition revenue and trying to figure out how to yeah. transform their business model in a way that makes it more sustainable. Philanthropy is increasingly a key part of the equation, 91% of presidents in a recent Inside Higher Ed survey said that philanthropy is going to play a big role in the revenue growth strategies across the coming year or two. Uh, and for those institutions, that competition, uh, it's probably not fatal, but it's in a way death by a thousand cuts. Jeff, this has been fascinating. I could have you back. Let's let's plan on having you back once a quarter and tell me tell us what tell our listeners what EAB is doing. I'm going to put you on my uh, my little 
my list here and say, make sure to get Jeff back periodically. Um, I really appreciate some of the stuff that you gave me before we logged on today. Thank you for that. That's very helpful in my own research. Jeff, if somebody was reach, wants to reach out to you, reach out to the team at EAB and get some more information, want to know how to find you, perhaps continue this conversation, how would you like them to Just do that? Just send me an email. My name is Jeff Martin. The email address is easy, jmartin at eab.com. I have a very exciting agenda that my research team is putting together for the coming months, including our ROI benchmarking work, series of roundtables on diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice and advancement, and look at the future of fundraising post-vaccine. So feel free to reach out. Jeff, you're always welcome back. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.